any way you look at it, the 2016 presidential elections in the United States are going to make history. On one side, you have Hillary Clinton, who, if elected, would become the country's first female president. Then you have Bernie Sanders, who, if elected, would become the country's first Jewish president. And then there's Donald Trump. I think we can all agree, if Trump is elected and follows through with his campaign promises, he'll make history in other ways. Now, no matter who wins, there's bound to be greedy and political powers at play, not to mention a fair share of conspiracies, all in an attempt to tangle, hide, and distort the truth. After all, the politicians may be different, but corruption in the White House certainly isn't anything new. In 2008, award-winning director Ron Howard released a Hollywood blockbuster that tells the story of another president who made history. Richard Nixon was the first and only president ever to resign from office. Now, the movie, called Frost Nixon, went on to be nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture. But it's really the story of a story, as it highlights an interview between President Nixon and David Frost, where Nixon made history yet again by doing something that no president ever does, admit guilt on national TV. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. In 1969, Republican Richard Milhouse Nixon became President Nixon at the age of 56. He took office in the middle of the Vietnam War, a bloody conflict that ended up lasting almost 20 years. Now, for years, the war was Nixon's primary focus as he worked to improve relations with the Soviet Union and China, two superpowers supporting the Vietnamese in the war. While the war and other issues certainly took priority, as with all politicians, as soon as he was elected, Nixon started working on his re-election effort, which was four years later. As Nixon was settling into the White House, David Frost was settling into a new home of his own. Now, Frost was just coming off major success in Britain with his TV show, That Was the Week That Was, or which was commonly abbreviated to TW3. Now, TW3 was a political satire short, sort of like The Daily Show or The Colbert Report on Comedy Central here in the United States. Actually, while TW3 was the rise of fame for its host, Frost has his own show, The Frost Report, which he hosted for a short time after TW3 went off the air. Although there's no proof that The Colbert Report is named after The Frost Report, both actually were political satire shows. Now, host David Frost made a name for himself making fun of politics, and he did a great job at it. He was half comedian, half journalist, and full-time talk show host, and a wonderful performer. In 1969, as President Nixon was settling into the White House, David Frost moved from the UK to America to start a new show called Frost on America. His salary was £125,000, or about $350,000 in today's United States dollars, which was the most for any British personality in America. And so it went for a few years, President Nixon, the leader of the free world, and David Frost living completely separate lives. While Frost was interviewing celebrities like Jack Benny and Muhammad Ali on his show, Nixon was shaking hands with people like Chinese Premier Zhu Enlai and Chairman Mao. Meanwhile, back in Washington, D.C., a timeline of events was about to unfold that would spark one of the greatest political scandals of all time. On September 3, 1971, a band of men snuck into a psychiatrist's office in the dead of night to steal paperwork on one of the patients, a man named Daniel Ellsberg. 
These men were nicknamed the Plumbers Unit because they were responsible for plugging leaks in the president's administration. You see, Ellsberg had leaked what's now referred to as the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times. They exposed the United States' political and military involvement in Vietnam all the way back to 1945, just after World War II. Now, these papers sparked controversy because they exposed the fact that the United States had been conducting bombings in more than just Vietnam. Under the cover of the Vietnam War, the U.S. was bombing the nearby countries of Cambodia and Laos, as well as performing a number of other coastal raids and attacks that the United States never officially disclosed. Now, the Pentagon Papers certainly wasn't on the scale of the leaks that we've seen in recent years from people like Edward Snowden, but like Snowden today, the U.S. charged Ellsberg with conspiracy, espionage, and theft of government property. So that's the leak that the Plumbers Unit was trying to plug for the Nixon administration. And they probably would have gotten away with it, too. We never would have known about the Plumbers Unit and its cover-up. But we do know about them, and we know about them because of a sequence of events that appear to be pure chance. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history, and that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up, and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four-hour drive to a state park. And... It couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. It was just after midnight on a typical June day when Frank Wills, a security guard at a plush hotel in downtown Washington, D.C., noticed tape covering door latches on some of the doors near the underground parking garage. Now, the tape let the doors close, but kept them from locking like they should when they close. They should automatically lock. Wills removed the tape and locked the doors. He didn't really think anything of it. He just continued his rounds. Now, about an hour later, he made his way back to one of the doors that he had taken the tape off of earlier, and he noticed that there was tape on it again. That's when Wills called the police. On June 17, 1972, three plainclothes officers responded to Wills' call and happened to catch the five men in the plumber's unit off guard inside the offices of the Democratic National Committee, which took up one of the floors of the Washington, D.C. hotel. That hotel's name? Watergate. 
immediately it was clear that this wasn't just a normal break-in. The Washington Post broke the news to the public in what would start a flurry of articles from a secret informant, someone codenamed Deep Throat, who had inside details on the Nixon administration. The Post had an article the next day, June 18th, describing the break-in. Here's a quote from the Washington Post article. Police said the men had with them at least two sophisticated devices capable of picking up and transmitting all talk including telephone conversations. In addition, police found lockpicks, door jimmies, almost $2,300 in cash, most of it in $100 bills with the serial numbers in sequence. The men also had with them one walkie-talkie, a shortwave receiver that could pick up police calls, 40 rolls of unexposed film, two 35mm cameras, and three pen-sized tear gas guns. Near where they were captured were two open file drawers, and one National Committee source conjectured that the men were preparing to photograph the contents. End quote of the article. The five men, one of whom claimed to be a former CIA agent, were apparently trying to bug the DNC's offices. But they obviously had plenty of high-tech gear, not to mention the $100 with sequential serial numbers. That's something you don't just get on the street. So the day after the Washington Post first article came out, yet another one came out identifying one of the burglars as a GOP security aide. This raised some eyebrows, and people started to turn to the Nixon re-election campaign offices for answers. But John Mitchell, a former attorney general who was then in charge of Nixon's re-election campaign, denied any link to the operation. So if it wasn't the Nixon campaign, who was it? Who was behind this break-in? Now, wiretapping is a federal offense, so because there was wiretapping equipment found, the FBI was called in to investigate. This might seem like a third-party investigation, until you find out that the FBI's acting director, men by the name of L. Patrick Gray, had been appointed by Nixon earlier in 1972 when former director J. Edgar Hoover died in his sleep. Gray, along with uh, his friend, somebody that he trusted, a man by the name of Mark Felt, were heavily involved in the investigation. Now, while Nixon knew that he had grain in the bag, he trusted him. He wasn't too sure about Felt. So in a conversation that it would come to light years, years later, but it happened on June 23rd, 1972, White House Chief of Staff H.R. Haldeman is heard telling Nixon that Felt in the FBI would cooperate with the White House because Felt is a very ambitious person. Now, just a few short months left until the presidential election in November of 1972, the investigations continued. On August 1st, the Washington Post published another story with more findings. Apparently, a $25,000 cashier's check somehow found its way into the bank account of one of the Watergate burglars. The check's source? It had been earmarked by the Nixon campaign. Now, another Post story on September 29th exposed that John Mitchell, who had denied any involvement earlier, had actually been controlling a secret Republican fund to finance widespread intelligence gathering operations against the Democrats. Now, a couple of weeks after this story broke on October 10th, the FBI came out as saying that the Watergate break-in was just the tip of the iceberg. The Nixon campaign was spying and conducting sabotage as part of Nixon's re-election efforts. On November 7th, 1972, President Richard Nixon won 
one of the largest landslide victories in American political history. He took more than 60% of the vote, effectively demolishing the Democratic nominee, a very aptly named Senator George McGovern. Now, despite his re-election, the Watergate break-in was still under investigation, and on January 14, 1973, the trial began for seven men who were charged with connections to the break-in. Among these seven were two men who were former aides to President Nixon. These men were named G. Gordon Liddy and James W. McCord Jr., now, the other five men didn't need the jury to convict them. They pled guilty on their own, but Liddy and McCord didn't. So with more than 100 pieces of evidence against them, it took only 16 days of trials and 60 witnesses to convince the jury. But then the jury only needed 90 minutes to reach their guilty verdict. On January 27th, Liddy and McCord were found guilty of all charges against them. Meanwhile, on April 27th, Gray was forced to resign as the acting director of the FBI after it came to light that he destroyed a file that was in a White House safe. Now, he was covering something up for the White House. On his way out, Gray suggested to Nixon that Felt should take his place, but Nixon still wasn't sure if he trusted Felt. So instead, he appointed somebody that he could trust, the former first head of the Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, a man by the name of William Ruckelshaus. Now, three days later, on April 30th, Nixon addressed the American people through a special television address. He said, and I quote, there can be no whitewash at the White House, end quote. And then he went on to accept full responsibility for the actions of his staff, but he never actually admitted any guilt himself. In fact, the way he positioned it was that it was something his staff hatched and he knew nothing about. And so, as he told the American public, just 10 hours before he was on TV, he had accepted the resignations of those responsible for Watergate. Top White House staff H.R. Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, and Attorney General Richard Kleindienst. Now, while he didn't resign, the president also announced firing of John W. Dean III, a man that Nixon had put in charge of investigating the Watergate scandal on the White House side. It would appear that Nixon was clearing the White House of anyone involved in the Watergate scandal. In the process of replacing the men who had left, Nixon promised to, quote, uncover the whole truth, end quote, about Watergate. So he was doing the best that he could trying to find or get to the bottom of this and, and issue in the transparency that presidents so often do. Now, in an effort to show his administration's attempts to get to the bottom of the Watergate scandal, Nixon appointed Archibald Cox as a special prosecutor. Now, Cox's role was to help the Senate's Watergate committee with the investigation. And so the investigation continued, with the White House supposedly fully cooperating. Now, almost a full year after the men were found inside the Watergate Hotel, it was on June 13, 1973, the Watergate prosecutors found a memo addressed to one of the men who resigned, John Ehrlichman. In the memo was a detailed description of the break-in to Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist office nearly two years earlier. On the same day, a former presidential secretary by the name of Alexander Butterfield gave his testimony to Congress and admitted that President Nixon has tape recordings of all of the conversations and phone calls in his offices, and he's had it since 1971. 
Now, while the prosecutors certainly didn't know about this at the time, history now tells us that five days after Butterfield's testimony, Nixon ordered the White House taping system be disconnected. The revelation that everything was recorded would be a massive help to the investigation, although it did seem a bit odd that the White House hadn't let the prosecutors know about this fact. After all, they had promised to uncover the truth. They'd promised to cooperate, and if there was nothing to cover up, why wouldn't they let them know about these tapes? Something wasn't quite right. And the suspicions got only worse when on July 23rd, after officially being requested to turn over the tapes to either the Senate's Watergate committee or the president's own special prosecutor, President Nixon refused. Three months later, on October 20th, there were more political casualties in the scandal. In one night, which came to be known as the Saturday Night Massacre, President Nixon got rid of many of the men who had just been put in place a few months earlier. Attorney General Elliot Richardson, who had replaced the Attorney General who had resigned over Watergate in April, and William Ruckelshaus, who had left the FBI to be a Deputy Attorney General, both resigned. At the same time, President Nixon forced Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox out of office by firing him. He then went one step further and abolished the position of the Special Prosecutor altogether, effectively stopping the White House's cooperation in the investigation. As part of this event, which the Washington Post at the time called, quote, the most traumatic government upheaval of the Watergate crisis, end quote, Nixon ordered that the FBI close off the offices of the men who were leaving. No one could take anything out of the offices of Richardson, Ruckelshaus, or Cox. The entire company, which was captivated by the events as they were unfolding, couldn't help but wonder what it was that Nixon didn't want taken out of the offices. While his administration clearly had some corruption going on, Nixon himself kept declaring his own innocence. On no November 17th, Nixon was interviewed by, on TV by 400 members of the Associated Press. Through an hour-long Q&A event, Nixon answered questions about Watergate and whether or not he's profited from his public service. His answer was, and I quote, I have earned every cent. And in all my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice, end quote. Now, another question spawned a similar answer. Here's an answer from Nixon, quote, People have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got, end quote. Nixon went on to promise to let investigators have access to his personal finances, personal documents, and tapes to help the investigation. Again, Nixon promises to cooperate with the investigation. And this time, it would seem that he did so. A few days actually before the interview, Nixon had turned over some of the tapes, claiming that the tapes would prove that he had no knowledge of the Watergate incident and that he was innocent. Now, finally getting access to some of, but not all of, the tapes, the investigators started pouring through them. One area of particular interest was a meeting that Nixon had with former White House Chief of Staff H.R. Haldeman. It was a meeting that took place on June 20th, 1972, three days after the men were caught at Watergate. This conversation was specifically mentioned by the former special prosecutor Archibald Cox, who said, quote, There is every reason to infer that the meeting included discussion of the Watergate incident, end quote. While the investigators were pouring through the tapes, Nixon was still answering questions about Watergate just about everywhere he went. 
At the Republican Governors Association meeting in Memphis, he was asked if the GOP would be hit with any more bombshells in the Watergate case. His reply, and I quote, If there are any more bombs, I'm not aware of them. End quote. The next day, another bomb hit. Something wasn't right with the tapes. Something was missing. 18 and one quarter minutes of the meeting was gone. I wasn't completely blank. On either end of the missing portion, you could hear Nixon and Haldeman talking. Then for 18 minutes and 15 seconds, there was an audible tone, but no conversation could be heard. Someone had obviously tampered with the tapes. The White House special counsel, J. Fred Buzzhard, said Nixon knew about the missing section of the tape because he had been made aware of it shortly after it was discovered on November 14th. The investigators turned to the White House for answers in a federal hearing. President Nixon's personal secretary, Rose Mary Woods, testified that it took her nearly 30 hours to transcribe the two-and-a-half-hour meeting between Nixon and Haldeman because the quality of the audio was very bad, but she didn't notice any long, blank spots. Then the White House Chief of Staff, Alexander Haig, gave what is perhaps one of the most intriguing testimonies about the missing portion. Now, Haig was giving testimony in the hearing when Judge Sirica, who was overseeing the hearing, asked about the missing portion. Haig discussed the possibility that, and I quote, perhaps there had been one tone applied by Miss Woods, and then perhaps some sinister force had come in and applied the other energy source and taken care of the information on that tape, end quote. Judge Sirica asked, quote, has anyone ever suggested who that sinister force might be, end quote? Haig's reply was, quote, no, your honor, end quote. And so it would seem that 18 minutes and 15 seconds of tape had just vanished, gone missing, thanks to a sinister force of unknown origins. You can see why this sort of scandal was not only gripping the American public, but also why Americans started to call for Nixon's impeachment. On April 30th, 1974, the White House released 1,254 pages of transcripts from meetings that had been secretly taped in the White House. These documents were explosive, another bombshell going off. They contained over 200,000 words and exposed revelations about the president's role in Watergate. Now, the White House claimed these documents were proof of the president's innocence. In an official statement, the White House summarized the papers, saying, quote, in all of thousands of words spoken, even though they are often unclear and ambiguous, not once does it appear that the President of the United States was engaged in a criminal plot to obstruct justice. End quote. So essentially, releasing these documents was the White House's way of clearing the President's names. But even these documents had been edited, and prosecutors kept insisting that the original tapes needed to be turned over. Their reasoning was that while they didn't necessarily distrust the White House, they really wanted to independently verify the truth of the White House's statements. After all, it's not like the White House has been really forthcoming up to this point. The House Speaker, Carl Albert, a Democrat, summarized the response to the documents released very well when he said, quote, why substitute other evidence when direct evidence is available? End quote. Now, he was talking, of course, about the actual tapes themselves. But from there, things started to unravel quickly. On July 24th, the United States Supreme Court rejected the president's claim of executive privileges and ruled unanimously that Nixon must turn over unedited tape recordings of 64 White House conversations. 
Three days later, the House Judiciary Committee passed the first of three articles needed to impeach President Nixon on charges of obstruction of justice. Now, 12 days later, on August 8, 1974, President Richard Milhouse Nixon became the first and only United States president to resign from office. Nixon addressed the nation, saying, and I quote, By this action, I hope that I will have hastened the start of the process of healing which is so desperately needed in America, end quote. But Nixon never admitted guilt. In fact, in his final speech as president of the United States, Nixon never even mentioned the Watergate incident. Now, shortly after his address to the nation, House Judiciary Committee Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski, who is working on the Watergate scandal, issued a statement, quote, There has been no agreement or understanding of any sort between the president or his representatives and the special prosecutor relating in any way to the president's resignation, end quote. Essentially, what this means is that the House Judiciary Committee doesn't have any sort of involvement with the resignation. So the Watergate scandal, as far as they were concerned, didn't have anything to do with the resignation. There was no um, deal that had been struck, essentially. And one month after his resignation, the new president, Gerald Ford, issued a full and unconditional pardon to Richard Nixon for any crimes he might have committed against the United States while president. President Ford claimed that the pardon, which was very controversial at the time, was because he wanted to end the scandal once and for all. But it wasn't a very satisfying ending. The country still wanted to know the truth, the truth that they had been promised time and time again by the White House. Now it appeared that there would be no truth. No one would ever know the actual truth. Until, it would seem, David Frost stepped up to give the American people what no one else could. Now, as we learned about the beginning of this episode, Frost had moved to the United States at the same time as Nixon took office for his first term. Now, while Frost really wasn't politically motivated himself, he did have a history of political satire in Britain, so it made perfect sense that Frost would take interest in the ripe pickings of the Watergate debacle. Now, a former president, Nixon had been offered $2.3 million by Warner Books to write his memoirs. That's about $9.3 million in today's dollars. Even though Nixon wasn't president anymore, he still had lawyers and other various aides on his payroll, and that cost wasn't cheap. So three years after his resignation, Nixon found himself running low on funds, and with his memoirs still far from being complete, Nixon needed some quick cash. So Frost jumped at the opportunity. Now in the movie, Nixon negotiated a handsome sum of $600,000, or about $2.4 million in today's dollars, in exchange for a series of exclusive interviews with David Frost. In truth, some people remember it differently. There's, there's conflicting reports on how the negotiations went, whether Frost offered up 600000 up front or Nixon negotiated his way to the amount. That is the number that was agreed upon, $600,000. And although the movie didn't mention it, Nixon also negotiated a 20% share in any of the profits that the interviews would generate. Just like in the movie Frost-Nixon, it was Nixon's chief of staff, Jack Brennan, who's played by Kevin Bacon in the movie, who worked with Frost to negotiate the exact terms of the interviews. Brennan was convinced that Frost, who had a background in political satire, would be an easy interview for the former President Nixon, someone who had spent much of his presidency being hounded by questions about Watergate. So this interview with Frost would be cake. 
And the movie was right when they set up the event as not a single interview, but rather as a series of 12 separate interviews. Although in the movie, the interviews appeared to happen somewhat sporadically and without a clear indication of the overall schedule. So the first interview took place on March 23rd, 1977, with three interviews happening per week over a four-week period. Each interview was two hours long, so essentially for two hours every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for four weeks, David Frost interviewed former President Nixon for what would end up being 28 hours and 45 minutes worth of footage. Now, in the movie, the interviews took place in the Smith's home because Nixon's home had issues with interference. This part of the movie is actually true. The radar from Coast Guard ship stationed near Nixon's house in San Clemente, California, interfered with the TV relay equipment used by Frost's production company that was taping the interviews. Nixon thought that he could get rid of it and still do the interview in his home because the Coast Guard had always moved their ships when he asked them to when he was president. So he made a phone call, and it was apparent that he didn't hold the power that he once did. The ships didn't move, and they had to actually move the interview. So they were looking for another place to record the interviews when Mr. Harold H. Smith and Mrs. Martha Lee Smith, who were both longtime supporters of Nixon, offered their home. One of Frost's production crew visited Smith's 3,667-square-foot home to see if it worked for the interviews. With 40 film crew members, Martha Smith would later recall the primary reason for the Frost crew picking her home. It was the bathroom. The, the first thing that the crew asked Mrs. Smith was to see where the bathroom was located. Someone went in, flushed the toilet, and it was quiet. That settled it, is what Smith recalled. And with so many working on the interviews, it would be unavoidable that someone would need to use the restroom during the interviews. But they only had one shot at the interview, so they couldn't risk letting the flushing toilet ruin them. So they used the Smith's home. They rented the home for four weeks for $6,000. That's about 24000 in today's dollars, so not too bad for one month. Now, while the movie didn't really mention this, even though the interviews were only Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, the crews left everything set up for all four weeks. So the Smiths pretty much left their house during the interviews, and it wasn't until the final day of the interviews that the Smiths actually got to meet Nixon. The movie did a pretty good job of showcasing the interviews themselves. There were three cameras set up to capture the interview, one close up on Nixon, one on Frost, and then another wide-angle shot that got both men. Now, as the interview's director, Jan Winther, later recalled, they made sure that Nixon's chair was so comfortable that Nixon would be able to sit in it forever. They didn't want him to be able to get up and talk to his team during intermissions, or didn't really want him to have to do that. So a lot of thought went into setting up the whole thing. Still, Frost, who was known as a soft interviewer, didn't really stand up to Nixon very well. After all, Nixon had spent a lifetime battling tough interviewers and had yet to admit any guilt. In the movie, there's a moment where one of the light bulbs goes out, sounding kind of like a gunshot. Frost is thrown by this, but Nixon laughs it off, saying that as president, you get used to these kinds of things. While a light bulb did go out, it didn't happen quite like that in the movie. In reality, the pop inside the house from the light bulb going off was so loud that it caused Winther, who was directing the interviews from a production truck outside the house, came rushing inside. When he came inside, he half expected to see Nixon shot, but he was relieved to see that it was just a light bulb that had exploded. Still, the Secret Service was unnerved by this exploding light bulb, so they insisted on researching the entire house before continuing the interviews. Winther didn't really think much of it at the time because the Secret Service had searched the house weeks before they even started the interviews and deemed that it was clear, so he went back out to the truck. 
A little bit later, he was pulled from his production truck by the Secret Service agents with their guns trained on him. Winther, along with the rest of the Frost crew, were taken down to the basement of the home where the Secret Service agents had found a munitions cache. It appears that the Smiths were gun collectors, and when the Secret Service did their search of the home three weeks before, no one had even noticed a huge stash of guns that were just below the spot where Nixon was being interviewed. It seems the Secret Service then thought that someone would pull out a gun and shoot Nixon, so they cleared the cache of weapons and the interviews resumed. Now, in the movie, there's a crowd of media personnel swarming the Smiths' home. Now, it seems that they're there pretty much throughout the entire four weeks of interviews. In reality, this isn't really how it happened. Now, sure, people knew about the interviews, but the Smiths' home was in a gated community, and not many people made it through the community's gate. Some did, though. In fact, some of the crew members later reported that journalists disguised as gardeners would slip through the community's gate and offer the crew up to $80,000 or $300,000 in today's dollars for advanced clips of the interviews. But unlike the movie, no one actually made it to the Smith's front door. Another event that never actually happened was Nixon's drunken phone call to David Frost. In the movie, this event was something that Nixon does and then seemingly forgets. And it's the event that actually motivates Frost to turn around the interviews. Up until that point, they weren't going very well. Now, after the movie was released, the real David Frost would later reveal that this never actually happened. While Nixon's team didn't have access to any of the actual questions beforehand, everyone knew the basic structure of the interviews. And just like in the movie, the touchy Watergate subject was saved for the last interview. And so it was that Frost's crew knew almost immediately that they had something special after that last interview, but no one else in the world really did. Taping the interviews wrapped up in mid-April, and then immediately the production team started editing them together. Now, this wasn't an easy process. If you think, there's almost 30 hours of footage to go through from three different cameras. That's 90 hours of footage to comb through totally. The director, Winther, later recalled how tempted the team was to fudge the accuracy of the interview. And I quote, it was a great temptation because that would have been bad for him. We knew he was being dishonest at times and it would have shown him being dishonest. So we certainly considered it. In editing, we could have changed history. We could have made this guy look really, really bad. Even David at times asked, don't we have a better reaction shot? Nowadays, everyone does it. End quote. Knowing how special what they had managed to capture was and the importance of journalistic integrity, the team decided to present the interviews as accurately as they could have. For five sleepless weeks, the team edited the interviews down to four programs, each one 90 minutes long. Frost decided that the Watergate interview, the one that they actually performed last, would be the first to broadcast. So on Thursday, May 5th, 1977, the first episode launched to a record that's still held today for the most viewers of a political interview in history. Over 45 million people tuned in. For the next three Thursdays, a new 90-minute segment of the interviews was released. Following the first segment about Watergate on May 5th, May 12th segment contained questions about Nixon and the world. And then on May 19th, there was a segment about Vietnam War, both at home in the United States and abroad. And it was actually in this segment where Frost asked a question about the legality of the president's actions. Just like in the movie, Nixon replied with, quote, well, when the president does it, that means it is not illegal, end quote. The final segment aired on May 26, 1977 and surrounded Nixon the man. A couple months after the final segment, Frost released another 90-minute segment of edited material from the first four parts. 
And this was broadcast on September 10th, 1977, and it opened up with Frost blunt question, quote, why didn't you burn the tapes, end quote. The aftermath of the interviews proved to be an end to any chance Nixon would have of making a comeback into politics. Nixon went on to publish his memoirs in 1978, and it was a bestseller and received relatively positive response. Although in the movie, Nixon appears to drift off into obscurity after the interviews, he did have a few moments of publicity. The most notable of these was when he came back to the White House in 1979 at the invitation of the then president, Jimmy Carter. President Carter didn't really want to invite Nixon to the White House, but he was hosting a dinner for the Chinese Vice Premier Deng Xiaoping. And as Nixon had spent a majority of his early earlier days in the White House bolstering Chinese-American relations, Deng had insisted that Nixon be invited to the dinner. And a couple years later, in 1980, Nixon defied the State Department by attending a funeral of the former Shah of Iran, another friend that Nixon had made through diplomacy. The State Department didn't want anybody attending the funeral, funeral as an official United States representative. And even though Nixon was not an official representative, because he was a former president, he, it was kind of viewed that he was representing the United States. Now, later that same year, 1980, Nixon made his way back to national TV when he supported Ronald Reagan for president. Nixon continued making appearances, joining former presidents as actually official representatives of the United States this time on various foreign trips here and there until on June 22, 1993, Pat Nixon died of lung cancer. Former President Nixon was grief-stricken when his wife died, and it was less than a year later, on April 18, 1994, Richard Nixon suffered a stroke while preparing to eat dinner at home in Park Ridge, New Jersey. Four days later, with his daughters at his bedside, he died at the age of 81. Over 40,000 people lined up for miles to pay their respects. Following his death, the Dallas Morning News stated that, quote, History ultimately should show that despite his flaws, he was one of our most far-sighted chief executives, end quote. Eleven years after Nixon's death, the man who had leaked information to the Washington Post and eventually began the downfall of Nixon's political career was unmasked. It came on May 31, 2005, when former FBI Associate Director Mark Felt admitted that he was deep throat. Felt passed away three years later in 2008 at the age of 95. David Frost, on the other hand, survived both Felt and Nixon, and although he never actually gained as much public attention as he did with the Nixon interviews, he had a very successful career. Frost was alive when the movie Frost-Nixon was released in 2008, and even had a chance to weigh in on the legitimacy of the film. According to Frost, there was about 10 or 12% of the film that was inaccurate, the biggest fiction being the drunken phone call from Frost that never actually happened that we talked about earlier. But overall, Frost was impressed with how accurately the film depicted the events. On August 31, 2013, David Frost was on a 10-day cruise in the Mediterranean when he had a heart attack and died. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. If you want to learn more about the events in Frost-Nixon, you can actually order the original interviews. Just do a search for Frost-Nixon, the complete interviews on Amazon, and you'll find a two-disc set with all 400 minutes of interviews. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Based on a True Story podcast. 
Based on a True Story is on the web at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Dan Lefeb, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Drop by, say hi, and let me know what you think.